Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You're about to embark on a great journey let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea, a new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, Welcome ladies and gentlemen to another oddcast featuring me your odd man out, and I really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with me and hopefully learn some new stuff. And I know that you will because my next guest is one of the most knowledgeable people I think I've ever listened to. I think that a lot of my listeners will probably be familiar with them, but there'll be a few that aren't, and you're in for a treat. I welcome Recluse from the longtime Visa blog and the wonderful Farm Podcast. How you doing, Recluse? Doing well, sir, and uh, thank you so much for having me on this evening. No, thank you. The pleasure is all mine. You know, I usually, I know it sounds cheesy, but I usually ask people off the top, you know, kind of what got them into researching. And I know a lot of people have the kind of typical 9-11 or something like that, but is there anything uh, in particular that kind of got you down this rabbit hole that you've really done so well with in your research? Well, it was a, you know, a combination of things, but I mean, I think for me, the, the really big event actually was probably, um, the first mushroom trip that I had, uh, when I was living at the dorms at the, the university of Colorado at Colorado Springs. Uh, so there's a cafeteria at the dorms there, at least there was back when I was attending, this would have been like around 03, 04 thereabouts. And, um, they would do these late night meals, I think like around 11, 1130, kind of like a midnight snack, you know, for the students. So I had taken the mushrooms, gosh, I want to say like maybe around 8 p.m. or something like that. Uh, so I, it seemed like they were starting to wear down a little bit around the time the cafeteria had opened up at about 1130. So I was like, eh, maybe it's a good time now to go get some food in my system uh, before I start settling in for the night. Uh, so I walk into the area of the cafeteria specific, like there's kind of two different sections of it. There's like the dining area on the outside. And then there's, uh, the part where they would have like the actual kitchen and, you know, the little islands and stuff with like the food selections on that you could grab and so on and so forth. So I go into kind of like this interior section, which is really, you know, white, uh, with the floors and the ceilings and everything like that. And as I get in there, it's like there's some kind of 80s smoke machine or something running at it. It seems like there's smoke everywhere. It's much darker than it should be. And as I'm gazing upon the students walking through uh, the cafe, you know, picking up their food and stuff like that, I see these seven-foot-tall gray aliens walking amidst them as clear as day i mean as clear as i'm seeing you on the thing it's actually the only time i've really had an hallucination like that where i actually saw something like really concretely like that in front of me and oddly enough these uh 
I just recently was, uh, I've been doing a lot of research on Stanley Kubrick lately, and I was looking at some of the um, proposed sketches for what the aliens in 2001 A Space Odyssey would have looked like had they actually filmed them. And eerily, they were very close to what I had uh, seen. You know, essentially these very tall skinny uh, creatures and they're just sort of like walking around amongst the students. It looks like they're maybe taking observations, things like that. And it really blew my mind. Like I said, I'd never had an experience before really uh, like that since then, even though I've done a fair amount of psychedelics. So anyway, um, that had kind of implanted an interest in my mind as to whether or not uh, people had had encounters with what appeared to be aliens or extraterrestrials or whatever in altered states of consciousness. So I had started to look into that, um, I, was, I guess maybe five or six years later. And uh, that was when I had discovered, um, you know, Rick Strassman's work on DMT and the experiments that they had done at the University of Arizona with that, where several of the participants had also uh, described seeing these alien-like beings. And then from there, I started looking at the Terrence McKenna's mechanical elves and things like that. So, okay, people see these things sometimes when they're tripping. Well, is, are there other kinds of altered states of consciousness that people have gone into when they have witnessed this. And as I started searching into that more, that was when I uh, uncovered uh, Project Stargate, you know, the whole like remote viewing program. And um, that you know, was another area where sightings of these, you know, kind of tall gray beings was fairly common amongst the remote viewers when they were in their sort of altered state or they were practicing their trade, right? And it was in this context, too, that I had first really started to take a look at things like MKUltra and Artichoke um, and certainly a lot of the experimentation that had been done with LSD and a lot of like uh, substances. So that was sort of what had initially gotten me into some of this um, specifically like a lot of the behavioral modification research and things like that. And then from there, I gradually kind of got into more of the conventional um, parapolitical stuff and what have you. But yeah, like 9-11 never really did a lot for me, actually, unlike a lot of people in my generation. In fact, to this day, I would say that I'm not especially knowledgeable about 9-11. I, you know, was gravitating towards like the Kennedy assassination or something like that when I had really gotten into this research and had just never um, felt a strong kinship to 9-11 for whatever reason, even though, I mean, it happened when I was 19. I can, like pretty much everybody, I can still remember the circumstances of what I was, I was actually getting high driving on my way to um, DPC Community College at the time. So, um, yeah, that was quite an experience. I was stoned to the bone, walked into the journalism class, and the kids are like, hey, dude, the, the two towers are gone. What do you mean they're gone? They're gone. They got hit by a plane. No, you're shitting me, right? <laughs> no, they're gone. So, that was like, um, yeah, got out. I got into, that was my exposure to 9-11. But yeah, that never... Um, really resonated with me to the extent of that uh, one particular experience I had at the University of Colorado. So, yeah, it's, um, it turned into quite a uh, curious journey. And then, I mean, another thing that's actually also recently occurred to me, too, uh, that I think was maybe always an underlining factor uh, was actually my interest in rock and roll and specifically sort of like the mythological um, elements of it that have been, that have kind of emerged over the years. And this was kind of something that I first had considered, you know, oddly when I was listening to the Nick Cave song Tupelo all those years ago as a teenager. Uh, I mean, for those of you who are not familiar with the uh, song, it sounds like Nick Cave is, you know, like ushering in the apocalypse or something like that, like the Antichrist, he's like calling forth or something. And in reality, the song is actually about uh, the birth of Elvis Presley, right? 
he gives it this whole gloss where it's like this modern prophet is like coming to bear on the modern United States or something like that. And it really blew my mind how you could use, you know, a pop culture icon in that context. And uh, one of my mates had suggested that I read uh, Grail Marcus's excellent book, Mystery Train, um, which eventually it also read me to another book that was really pivotal in my development, which was uh, Lipstick Traces. That's the one that goes into the whole connections between Dada and punk rock. It's also the first time I was ever exposed to Dada as well. So interesting side note on that. But Marcus and Mystery Train is all about, you know, really the myths around the origins of rock and roll with like the Robert Johnson stuff and things like that. And um, that it actually inspired uh, one of my first really short story. I'm still the most proud of that I'd written back when I was 19, which was called Sam Phillips and the devil blues. And um, as Elvis has been on my mind lately, I had just dug the story out and hadn't even really looked at it for, years and years and i was really struck by how it was almost like a proto work of synchromysticism or something like that because that was the other thing uh, besides my research into entheogens uh, well i mean the research into entheogens is what it uh, basically it spurred me to start uh, looking at some of the synchromystical blogs most notably chris Knowles's excellent the secret sun blog but anyway, I just, I can't help but feel that I was probably predisposed to that kind of thinking from going back to um, you know, some of these musings that I had on the early history of rock and roll. And then, oddly enough, that was also one of the things that had attracted me to a lot of Chris Knowles' work in the first place as well. Because, I mean, he, um, he had the excellent The Secret History of Rock and Roll book, and he's done a lot with... Um, just the whole sort of concept of rock stars and other pop culture icons as these sort of archetypes and things of that nature. So anyway, it was definitely quite a revelation for me to sort of go back and look at this story and see how uh, even back then I had already sort of picked up on this you know, sort of level of quote-unquote twilight language, if you will, that was present in um, you know, some of these more revered aspects of American culture. So I don't know. I mean, sometimes I almost increasingly now, especially I've almost wondered if I was always predisposed to go down this path sooner or later, if you will. It just seemed like I always had this sense for making these unusual connections between things that many normal people just simply would not uh, take into account. Well, that is very, very interesting. And that's one of the things I like about your research is because you're so detailed and you come from kind of a different perspective than I think a lot of people. And um, that's very refreshing because you're not afraid to go wherever the story leads, you know, wherever the truth leads. And I think a lot of people almost seem to stop in certain places because they, they might not want to show a certain politician or a certain person in a bad light. And, and I really appreciate the honesty that you bring to the table. And also with the music, uh, I had noticed in your About Me section on the Visa blog that uh, in the music, I know we have some uh, bands that we like in common. I thought that was really cool. Uh, Monster Magnet, Fu Manchu, uh, Brant Bjork, St. Vitus, Spirit Caravan, Sleep. Uh, so I thought that was really cool, man, because that's one of my favorite genres is, uh, you know, stoner rock, if you will, or, you know, doom metal, that kind of stuff. So, um yeah, I can see how music would have that effect. And there's something about that first Elvis record that has a haunting sound to it. You know, the mystery train and uh, just uh, really, um, it's a very moving kind of uh, dark, almost melancholy kind of feel to it. I grew up like for almost 11 years, I was in a band locally here with my brother and we were kind of like a cross between heavy metal and punk rock and we had some kind of more metalish songs we had some more punk rockish songs but after the band kind of broke up and I didn't have the time to kind of or the patience to keep on with it and you know kind of keep up with those other guys I got into rockabilly and uh, I recorded uh, Elvis's Mystery Train and a couple of Johnny Cash songs and some Carl Perkins and some of those early Sun songs I don't know if I did them justice or not but it was really fun to go back and listen to that music and 
and kind of um, listen to those old records that I'd never really heard before. Yeah, well, I mean, in that whole, I mean, all of that was so pivotal. I mean, I just had a conversation with Miguel Connor about this for the Elvis show uh, that we recorded. But I mean, when you just look at what was happening at Sun Records in the mid-1950s, I mean, that was so paramount to what became America's post-war culture. And I mean, really, we're still, I think, living in the reverberations uh, from that to this day. I mean, of course, musically, you know, besides Elvis, as you kind of alluded to, you also had Johnny Cash there, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins. I mean, just these are basically the guys that gave us, you know, rock and roll, country, folk, all that stuff as we know it, uh, you know, uh, currently in this modern era, they're the guys that made it acceptable um, for whites to listen to uh, black music effectively, because up to that point in time, there was a color barrier uh, to the blues, to jazz, to things like that, which they largely broke down. And then on top of that, just how they've influenced people, or I should say maybe different mediums uh, outside of music. I mean, when you look at just the Elvis archetype, um, you know, how much of an influence has that had on, say, the cinema of David Lynch or Quentin Tarantino or something like that? I mean, they're just so obsessed with that figure of Elvis. It's incorporated into different aspects, into so much of their work. And Johnny Cash would be another one that I would kind of throw in there. I mean, he is America's man in black. He is our shadow, if you will. In fact, there's actually that almost sort of weird duality with Elvis and um, Johnny Cash in that sense. Because, I mean, Elvis, you know, you sort of in the latter years think of him in those glorious white jumpsuits at Vegas and all this other stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's... It's just really striking to me uh, the power that certain scenes like that have and their ability to continue to shape culture many years afterwards. I mean, you just, it really just boggles the mind. I mean, to the point that when you look at a figure like Elvis, I mean, he has become uh, almost a personification, if you will, of the American spirit. I mean, as hokey as that sounds, but I mean, when you get down to just you know, stuff like Elvis sightings, for instance, I mean, there's almost like a Bigfoot-esque quality to them. And to this day, I think that when you get into sightings of humanoid figures, it's like Jesus, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and Elvis Presley in the United States. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that it says a lot about us as a people, I guess you could say. But I mean, so, yeah, there's just something to all of that. And that's where, you know, I think that really differentiated me from a lot of parapolitical researchers because I was always sort of aware that you had these dynamics that you just couldn't explain uh, through dry history or uh, research, if you will. And it's not to discount any of that because, I mean, I'm very big on, you know, look, reading as much material as you possibly can get on this subject or that subject. Uh, but after a while, I've kind of come to accept that sometimes, you know, you have to embrace the weirdness and the um, really kind of woo-woo explanations of stuff because it's ultimately sometimes the only thing that really makes sense. Yeah, agreed. I, I totally understand that. I, I while back, I guess a couple of years ago, or maybe a little bit longer than that now, I just started doing a podcast. I didn't know if I could do it or not. I still really don't know. But, uh, you know, I was just kind of learning. I, I was kind of enjoying researching, and I'd been doing that for a few years and, you know, just posting here and there on social media for anyone who was crazy enough to listen to me. But I finally got the guts to uh, do a podcast, and um, it took me a long time to learn how to properly research stuff I get sidetracked easily and stuff like that. And I wouldn't really know what sources to go to on, you know, particular subjects. But I finally realized that it was much better for me. And I'm, I'm sure you'd probably agree to go right to the source instead of listening or reading other people who were just kind of uh, talking about certain subjects. Uh, those books are good too, for sure. But, uh, you know, say Freemasonry or, you know, Zionism or something like that. I found it was much better to go to the actual sources and get their views and then maybe read those other books and, and kind of put it all together myself. 
because I felt like a lot of those researchers, the conspiracy researchers, kind of had their own biases like we all do, and, and maybe they were leaving things out here or there, or maybe they just, you know, maybe they didn't have enough information at the time to do a more deep kind of a research on a particular subject. So kind of a, that helped me out a lot. And uh, I can tell, man, you are so well-researched, and uh, we had messaged uh, – you know, back and forth. And I probably should say this quickly, thanks to uh, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence for introducing us. But um, I'd ask if you could possibly talk about uh, color revolutions and maybe uh, the National Endowment for Democracy and then these kind of organizations that basically seem to spur on these uh, different revolutions and these soft coups and in regime changes which sometimes are not so soft and those kinds of things and um, I'm really looking forward to getting uh, your uh, your uh, information on that well certainly and, and that's also a very uh, valid point you make about research and basically going back to primary source material because certainly as I've gotten older I've really tried to base as much of my uh, work as I can around, uh, you know, autobiographies, declassified documents, stuff that I'm able to get from special collections. It's something like Hoover, things of that nature, interviews, if I can swing it. Uh, because, yeah, there is frequently a lot of spin that's put on some of this stuff, especially when you get into, I mean, a lot of conspiratorial tomes and such like, uh, I mean, like, I'm trying to think. I know there's that one uh, quote that H.G. Wells made uh, concerning the New World Order that you see plastered around constantly. And it's like, if you ever go back and read the extent of what he actually wrote, like all of it, not, you know, the kind of Cliff Notes version of it, the meaning is very, very different than what is usually presented in the conspiracy works. So, yeah, I can't urge people enough to go back and try to get uh, as much of the material as they can from the proverbial horse's mouth. And just in general, I mean, going to the archives is just, it's like my uh, research partner, Keith Allen Dennis, always says, that's where you tend to find the stories that nobody's told before, so to speak. You know, that's where they're all kind of hidden away when you start reading the um, the letters and stuff that these guys have, like, left for you. Because, again, you got to, you know, you have to keep in mind all this stuff is very heavily curated. I mean, uh, this is another kind of interesting thing that I've noticed over years of doing this. But a lot of these, you know, individuals who knew that they were going to be historical figures where they're going to leave their, you know, their letters and all their other documentation to these archives and stuff. They were very meticulous about what they would put in their journals and their diaries and things like that, because they're trying to construct their own narrative as well. And um, that ultimately goes into what ends up in these collections and uh, what ends up in the fire, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's another factor to all this as well that can be interesting is not just what is in there, but also what are the motives and what was left behind? What are the narratives that they're trying to leave for you to find? So, yeah. but I anyway, uh, getting into the color revolutions here. So, yeah, this is a really fascinating topic and one that I had only recently started uh, to look at. So I'm still kind of like in my infancy uh, as far as it goes in researching this subject, but it's something that I'm going to be delving much more heavily into in the probably next year or so as I uh, get to work on another book here. But it really started to emerge around uh, 1983 or so which is when the National Endowment for Democracy was founded. And it was also when um, Gene Sharp had established his uh, institute. I can't remember what it was called now off the top of my head. Was uh, it the you, uh, Albert Einstein? Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it was the Albert Einstein Institute. Yes, I believe so. I believe you're right. Yes. Um, but to kind of put this into some perspective here. So... You know, this is coming at the onset of the Reagan era, right? 
And um, the United States had just and glamorously withdrawn from Vietnam about five years before 1975. Of course, you know, the, you can kind of reflect on the famous uh, scene of the helicopters, you know, ferrying troops and personnel out of the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. It was a huge humiliation for the country and so on. And it also really ended our um, involvement in that region of the world as well, uh, specifically in the mainland of Asia. I mean, we still had, I guess, a bit of a toehold in South Korea, but um, that was about it. And that was a big, big thing for us because after World War II, most of our major wars at that point had been in um, Southeast Asia, Eastern Asia, you know, Korea, Vietnam, all the other conflicts we were engaged in, Laos and all this other kind of stuff. So... We had to kind of take stock and uh, reevaluate what all had gone on with this. And it had become evident that we just didn't have um, the personnel, the resources to overtly occupy a lot of these countries, especially when you got into, like, say, Eastern Asia, because there was always the specter of China intervening when we, you know, became involved in a country over there as they had in Korea. China obviously has a huge freaking army, especially back then. And more or less, there's no way that we could have confronted the PRC going all the way back to Korea up through, you know, um, throughout the Cold War, really, without going nuclear. You know, I mean, even though our army had much better weapons and gear and all this other stuff, you know, we just, you know, they we just couldn't spare all the resources without leading uh, Europe vulnerable to Soviet invasion and all this other kind of stuff to try and redeploy troops over there to actually confront and defeat China. Otherwise, we just wouldn't have had enough troops. So you have to basically consider dropping the bomb or you can't really do a conventional uh, military excursion over there because we, you know, with the supply lines, with the staggering amount of forces that the PRC and the other nations could bring to bear, it just wasn't going to work out regardless of how technologically advanced we were. So we needed a new way to confront the Soviet Union, and this had really brought to the forefront um, a doctrine guys like Edward Lansdale had been advocating for many years up to that point. It's what we now tend to think of as low-intensity conflicts. And nowadays, I mean, this seems like really obvious, but in the aftermath of the Second World War, the general assumption within the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the military, and uh, even really a lot of the CIA was that eventually we would have the confrontation with Russia involving nuclear weapons and the large armies and all this other kind of stuff like we had had with the world wars. Now, you had this sort of dissenting opinion, guys like Edward Lansdale, who were saying, no, this was, you know... Uh, basically suicidal, what we really needed to focus on was uh, indirect struggles with the Soviet Union and the developing world. And by doing so, we would wage this largely through special operations forces using proxies. And of course, now, you know, we all know that that was basically the correct view to take. But uh, for many years, it struggled to gain traction, especially within the military hierarchy. But after what had happened with Vietnam, it just was now evident to about anybody with any common sense that, you know, we just, it wasn't politically uh, viable at home, right? You know, I mean, when you start having a certain amount of people being killed in the draft and all this other stuff going on, it's going to create a major backlash. So this further limits the amount of resources that you can bring to bear, all this other kind of stuff in terms of manpower, so this is where the beauty of the whole thing with low-intensity conflicts are. You can send special operations forces all around the world. They can hook up with indigenous paramilitaries, and they can start causing trouble. And it was perceived that while we maybe didn't have the raw resources to confront China and the Soviet Union and Asia in a full-blown war, we certainly had significantly more resources than the Soviets or the Chinese as a whole. 
So we can send all of these guys around the globe and we can just start touching off conflicts left and right. And this is basically what we did under the Reagan years. Though in fairness, this process had already really started under Jimmy Carter, but it went into overdrive under Reagan. And, you know, again, we all know about Afghanistan. We all know about Nicaragua. You maybe hear a little bit about like El Salvador, but there was a lot of countries. I mean, Jamaica, for instance, was being destabilized, um, not necessarily through an insurgency, but through gang warfare in Kingston and a lot of the other major countries. And this is at a time when they happen to be bracing maybe a little bit more nuanced relations with Castro and Cuba, which we were not very happy about. Other countries like Guyana being attacked. And you know, this is just in sort of the Caribbean and uh, South America. Uh, one of the regions you never hear about is Southern Africa. But again, there were just multiple conflicts all over there with Angola, Southwest Africa, Rhodesia, stuff that was going on within South Africa proper. Uh, this ended up getting Cuban forces deployed there. So there's a lot of fighting that's going on by the mid-1980s all across the globe, right? And this is the sort of environment where the concept of the color revolution came to bear. Uh, basically, you know, it was, I think, always viewed as another aspect of low-intensity conflict. And uh, to explain this, too, you have to sort of understand the nature of uh, special operations forces, especially within the U.S. military, because this plays into aspects of psychological warfare. So when you hear psychological warfare, the overwhelming assumption is that it's an intelligence function. But that's not how the military views it. The military doesn't see it as intelligence. It's considered to be an operation. And to some extent, this is really true of the CIA as well. I mean, most of their psychological warfare was done... Um, and what's been variously known as the direct right of operations or the direct right of plans, et cetera, et cetera. But this is the action arm of the CIA. This isn't the component that, you know, gathers intelligence and analyzes it. This is the one that's engaged in coups and a lot of other stuff like that. Deep penetration operations with human agents, all this other good stuff. And it's the same thing with the military. Cywar is not G2, which is intelligence. It's G3, which is operations. So effectively, much of what the CIA and the military are both doing with psychological warfare is classified as an operation, not an intelligence function. And within the military, this is really significant because, especially with the Army, psychological warfare falls under the purview of uh, the Special Operations Command. So basically, your war officers are another element of Special Operations along with, you know, your more conventional commando, Rambo kind of people that we're thinking of, i.e. the Green Berets, the Delta Force, the Navy SEALs. But they work in conjunction with psychological warfare. This is all sort of part of the same milieu. And as we got into the 1980s, as Lansdale and a lot of his acolytes have been advocating for years and years, we wanted to see more of a use of psychological warfare as a part of the low-intensity conflicts without needing to be supported directly uh, with military um, intervention. I mean, and this has really been a long-standing fixation with a lineage of these, you know, kind of different um, figures within special operations, guys like Lansdale, like, uh, what's his name, Jim Channon, the guy who came up with the 1st Earth Battalion, and then more recently, Michael Aquino, actually, as well. Essentially, can you destabilize a regime, cause a coup d'etat or something like that in a country almost purely with psychological warfare and not actually having to resort to using bullets. So these are all sort of the uh, theories and stuff that are being discussed around here. You know, again, this whole, it's significant that the National Endowment for Democracy and all this stuff comes out in 83 because this is right around the same time that 
what was later conceived of as the Joint Special Operations Command and all this other kind of stuff was being uh, thought up of as well. You know, it was really a much more significant, I think, reorganization of um, the national security state at this point in time than a lot of people realize, though. We wouldn't really see the full consequences of this until 9-11, but, you know, it was well in the works a good 20 years ahead of time. So that brings us to Gene Sharp. He was really the guy who had advocated this whole concept of nonviolent revolution through using things like protests and strikes and all this other good stuff to try to bring about regime change. And the first time that this was really, I think, studied, and then possibly we might have had some involvement in it as well, but certainly studied was with Tiananmen Square uh, during uh, the late 1980s, 1989 specifically is when this happened in China. And of course, you know, I mean, I know most people are probably familiar with this, but this was the student kind of revolt where uh, eventually the PRC was forced to intervene and put it down. I mean, you have the kind of famous scene of the, you know, the students singing Beatles songs and going along with the, the Buddhist statues and stuff in front of the tanks and all this other kind of thing. And they were crushed, but it was a huge symbolic victory. And it sort of, I think, laid the foundation for one of the major, uh, purposes of a color revolution and that's to create martyrs and that's kind of the great thing about the color revolution right is that it doesn't really matter if it succeeds or not if it does manage to topple a regime that's great but if it fails and it's practicing this whole you know um method of nonviolent resistance you're going to theoretically get a lot of unarmed people killed and that's also wonderful because now they're martyrs for the cause. So you can use this to generate even more public outrage, right? Right? So there's a lot of things with that that uh, are hugely beneficial for the long-term purposes of regime change. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of, I think it was my second or maybe third episode, but I did, I'd come across this psychological warfare tactics, or maybe it was um, guerrilla psychological warfare tactics, and I believe it was put out by the CIA during the uh, 1980s, early 80s, before the Iran-Contra scandal, and it explained in there a lot of what you're talking about, and it, it was really, it went, it was a small book, but it went into detail about how to basically stir dissent, go into these little towns and pretend to be one of the workers, you know, the, the kind of picket signs you should make and just exactly how you should con- conduct yourself. And it even went in as far as saying that uh, to create a martyr for the cause would go a long way. So, <laughs> you know, I, I suspect that they didn't think that book would be released for a long time and, you know, I'm sure that uh, it didn't get that much attention when it did because these things never seem to. But, uh, yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying. It's, and it makes me think, too, you know, with the, uh, these groups like NED, um, that, you know, they were kind of doing somewhat similar things or at least using these foundations even in, you know, the 50s uh, with, you know, the, of course, the Rockefellers and Fords and, and the, the different ones uh, to, to kind of, control policies and, and kind of do things kind of under the radar. And uh, I guess that's kind of a continuation of this. And uh, one thing I wanted to ask you quickly, too, is I did a show on the Congress for Cultural Freedom, and I've kind of noticed um, some similarities somewhat. I mean, they were kind of, I guess, essentially a propaganda arm, but uh, it seems like they, they kind of have um, some kind of, similar connections and techniques uh, that uh, they used that uh, Ned and these other organizations use. Uh, have, have you noticed anything like that? Or Well, that- yeah, I mean, it's not necessarily, like, I mean, obviously we have been using psychological warfare and a lot of these other methods to manipulate elections and so forth. 
you know, really going back to the Italian elections and the immediate aftermath of the Second World War. And that was, um, you know, kind of the climate that the, uh, was it the Center for Cultural Freedom uh, grew out of. But I, I think kind of the fundamental difference between that and the later uh, approach with color revolutions is that with something like the um, cultural freedoms people, they're basically trying to sustain U.S. and U.K. influence in Western nations that were already a part of, you know, our particular block. Whereas with color revolutions, more often than not, you're going into a hostile country, uh, you know, obviously during the Cold War era, into a uh, country aligned with the communist world, and you're trying to... Uh, generate regime change there with it. Whereas like, I think that from the more conventional stuff that we we're doing early on, you're trying to sustain the governments that we already had in place versus trying to topple them and put new regimes in power. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes total sense. They're, they're, these are big money organizations, aren't they? I mean, they, they receive so much funding that uh, I think it would just make people's heads spin if they knew how all of this works behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that brings me to the next guy here that I wanted to get into because um, he was really... Uh, well, okay, so one other thing, too, about Gene Sharp here. There's a couple of things, but one other point about him that I think bears uh, mentioning here because it's really fascinating in terms of some of these other figures we'll get into. But Sharp... So he had this whole method, basically, of advocating disruption through civil disobedience and all this other kind of stuff. And usually Gandhi uh, is held up as one of his primary influences, and certainly he was up there. Uh, but another one that's really interesting and not talked about a lot is uh, uh, Sawalinsky, who's really uh, notorious now for his ties to neocons and all this other kind of stuff but originally he was uh, quite close to uh, the far left of course he was the one behind rules for radicals and all this other kind of stuff but it's interesting to me because he also had quite a uh, considerable influence on the yippies as well in fact if i remember correctly abby hoffman um actually knew solinsky uh, and I had worked with him personally on maybe some of his earlier protests. But that's really, uh, to my mind, sort of significant because uh, the Yippies were major influence on things like Discordianism and so forth. Uh, Operation Mindfuck, I mean, you can really see that as an outgrowth of uh, what some of the stuff like the early Yippies, like Hoffman or maybe Paul Krasner were doing. So uh, this is kind of why, like, I think that... Uh, when you get into the 21st century, a lot of this stuff sort of became full circle later on where you start to see a lot of uh, basically discordian type of uh, methods being brought into these color revolutions and these other different kinds of movements. But again, it makes a certain sense because it is coming from a very similar source in a lot of this, which was really almost the use of street theater and performance art as a means of causing public disruption and may, potentially even making a city, a state, or even a nation ungovernable. So, and, you know, to kind of see the counterpoint of that, you know, you can look at something like uh, uh, the Democratic Convention in Chicago in 1968, where, you know, that was kind of the major coming out party for the Yippies with all the sort of uh, street theater that was going on with that and all kinds of things of that nature. So lots of interesting stuff with all of that. But anyway, another thing about Sharp uh, that bears mentioning was a major source of financing for years, and that was a guy called uh, Peter Ackerman, who later uh, put together his own center that was similar to the Albert Einstein Institute. It was, um, so point it up right now. Was that uh, the Canvas? Um, it was the International Center on Nonviolent Conflict. Uh, okay, okay, gotcha. Okay, okay. There's a lot of these different things out here. So Ackerman is a really, really, really interesting guy. And, 
as far as Gene Sharp goes, I I tend to feel like he was potentially exploited by a lot of these people. I don't think that he really intended for the methods and the ideology that he was developing to be weaponized to the extent that they have been. And a lot of that was due to this Mr. Peter Ackerman guy here who has a very interesting background. Of course, he ended up on the boards of a lot of the usual suspects, such as the Council on Foreign Relation and the Atlantic Council. Uh, but he cut his teeth uh, in industry and finance uh, during the 70s up to the early 80s. And specifically, he was working with Drexel Burnham Lambert, which is a very, very, very interesting uh, company. Of course, for those of you unaware, uh, this was the bank that uh, the junk bond king Michael Milken uh, was working for throughout his heyday in the 1980s. And, you know, this whole crowd around there was just incredible. Uh, you had Roy Cohn, of course, Donald Trump's uh, infamous attorney and political mentor. Trump himself was a part of Milken's circles. And, and of course, he famously pardoned uh, Milken while he was the president of the United States. Uh, some of the raiders that Milken used included Sir James Coldsmith, who, again, was just instrumental in um, setting up the Eurosceptic movement in the UK. Uh, he was dead by the time that Brexit uh, came into being, but I think it was like his son-in-law or something who was a huge financier of that. So Goldsmith is a part of this. Uh, Carl Linder uh, was another big figure with that. Um, Leon Black was a part of um, Milken's circle. He worked directly for Drexel Burnham Lambert, and Black, of course, went on to found Apollo Capital, uh, which is... Or at least it will, it might not currently now still own it, but for a time it was the company that owned um, the private military company previously known as Blackwater. Black is, of course, another big uh, Trump backer, a guy who gave a lot of money to his campaign and so on and so forth. So this is the crowd that Ackerman kind of came out of in the 1980s. Uh, when he started uh, supporting Gene Sharp. Oh, and of course, the other guy, too, was a part of that whole milieu, Mr. Jeffrey Epstein, uh, another guy who uh, kind of cut his teeth growing up around Michael Milken and that whole scene in New York City. But anyway, Ackerman, you know, he was a part of this whole milieu. And then this is the guy who ends up really embracing Sharp's methods and uh, starts giving him a lot of money to help set up the Albert Einstein Institute. Later, he sets up his own thing, the International Center for Nonviolent Conflict. And he would have a lot of links to many of the groups that we're talking about here. I think at one point he was the head of um, the National Endowment for Democracy. He was on the board of trustees for Freedom House which is another big group involved with a lot of the color revolutions. And I think Ackerman was uh, the guy maybe more than anyone else who really figured out how you could use Sharp's methods as a form, as a viable form of regime change. Of course, he was the guy who supposedly was in China in 1989 for the Tiananmen Square protests and observing what all was happening there. Wow. Talk about a guy with an interesting friends list. I mean, this, and I, I'd heard the name, but I'd never look at, looked into him. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, again, I always say the whole thing with Drexel Burnham Lambert is like so significant. Nobody ever really, you know, looks at that, but it's, it's just so crucial to a lot of the stuff that's playing out now. I mean, so many of these, figures and movements that have become preeminent in the last couple of years really got their start with Drexel Burnham Lambert. So it's, it's a very uh, overlooked component of all of this. All right, freaks and geeks, this concludes this episode of the Oddcast, featuring me, your odd man out and my very special guest recluse. Now there will be a part two next week. So I urge you to listen next week as well. And I'll be adding a little part on the end to kind of wrap all this up with a bow. And I'll probably be doing eventually another episode on Ned, or at least maybe kind of pulling a lot of this information together. 
I want to remind you to check the show notes too because I will have links to the two shows I've already done on the National Endowment for Democracy, as well as the episode I did on the Congress for Cultural Freedom, which we briefly mentioned. And so I urge you to check those out. Now I'm going to get to thanking my patrons real quick. And if you want to become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com forward slash odd man out. Choose a tier and support the show if you'd like. And as always, please share the show. I want to thank KF. I want to thank Cole. I want to thank Ashley. I want to thank that crazy bread man for being a covert co-conspirator. I want to thank Aaron. I want to thank Ruckus for being a producer of the show. And if you haven't heard my episode with Ruckus, the last episode before this one, then please get over there and check it out. He does some great work. He's working with ACR, Alternate Current Radio, as well as TNTRadio.live. Thank you, no evil shall I fear, for being a producer of the show. And I have something embarrassing to tell you. No evil let me know very kindly that I had been leaving the I out and saying no evil shall fear for months. So, no evil shall I fear, which is much better. Thank you so much for your patience and your support. And I'll try my best not to make that mistake again. I also want to thank Mark from Housatonic Live. Check out all of Mark's work. does great work on the whole COVID-19 vaccine subject. Thank you to James. Thank you, Bill, for being a producer of the show. Thank you, John Brisson, for being a covert co-conspirator. Check out John's work at We've Read the Documents. Thank you to the mighty Kilowatt. Thank you to Sir Tim of the Tunnels. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, Jack Allen from Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence. Check out all of Jack's content on YouTube and all your fine podcasting platforms. I also want to thank Alternate Current Radio, my podcasting family. Get on over to alternatecurrentradio.com. Check out all their fine music and talk shows over there, podcasts galore. And also check out my friend Hesher's show on TNT Radio as well. It's called State of the Nation. I want to also thank Fringe Radio Network for carrying the show, putting it up. They have a lot of great shows on their website, fringeradionetwork.com. And guys, I love you, mean it. Lord willing, I'll be bringing more stuff to you very soon. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys.